Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks a lot for tuning in. We've got a lot to get through. Through, it sounds like an ordeal. A lot of fun to be had in our time together today. Uh, just very briefly, a couple of notices. Then, if it's okay with all of you, uh, we're going to do something that you can only really do on podcasts where you've got space. I'm going to forensically analyze the article Keir Starmer wrote for The Observer on Sunday. And just to preview the analysis, I think it was one of the weakest articles I've read from a Labour leader for a long time, many years. And I say that with uh, kind of sadness because I yearn for him to do well. We need him to do well. But it was really weak. And I think it's important to explore why it's weak, because without that recognition at the highest level of the Labour Party, he's going to walk into a lot of difficulty in the build-up to the election campaign. Um, and then over to you. Now, I've had loads of emails, funny enough, about Labour and Keir Starmer and the dilemmas and the challenges, because I'm going to focus on it. I, I won't read those out, but there are other issues that, that you delve deep with brilliantly, and we'll come to those. So just a couple of notices. A reminder, sign up to Patreon, and we will be live next Monday to delve deep in the aftermath of the by-elections and much else. We can have a discussion together live. That's on Monday. And then, of course, from August the 13th, the Edinburgh Festival, Rock and Roll Politics, is live every day. And do get tickets, come along wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. I really hope that uh, a lot of you can make it. So, yeah, now over to the Observer article, which I read twice. I read it on the Saturday night and got quite cross. And then I read it again on the Sunday morning, got crosser because of this. Before we start the forensic analysis, uh, a bit of context. First of all, let me say, uh, in a way, I think sometimes those who condemn Keir Starmer and condemn other Labour leaders, it is an impossibly tough job. And uh, I fully recognize that. And it's not just the challenge of managing a Labour Party, which is pretty unmanageable at times. It is navigating a route to power with a broadly hostile media who think not only just from the right, but in cliches that uh, public spending is a waste, that in inverted commas, reform is good. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast. But also, let me contextualize by saying this. Every successful electoral project, or indeed governing project, and of course, it is important for Labour especially, winning is almost impossible. So an electoral project needs to be successful but it needs to then have a successful governing project. And in Britain, all successful electoral stroke governing projects are distinct and unique and fresh. And importantly, they feel distinct and unique and fresh. Just look back. And authentic. I know the word authentic is a cliche and I try and avoid it, but it is important. Uh, Harold Macmillan, a genuine One Nation Tory who had fought quite a few internal battles 
within his party in relation to One Nation Toryism, who had a clear sense of what he wanted to do in power and how to win it. Then you can move on to Harold Wilson, who was, again, a unique figure in the history of the Labour Party, with a clear sense of a winning project, and to some extent, in a way that's been underestimated, a governing project. It was thrown off course, as Labour governments often are, by the devaluation crisis, but it was distinct. Uh, Going forward, Thatcher, a distinct project. And going forward again, Blair, a unique, distinct project with a unique and distinct personality at its helm. So bear that in mind. The Observer article by Keir Starmer, I suspect it was written by people in his office who used to work for Tony Blair and see everything through their prism of their hero. Um, But not only did it lift themes from the Blair era, circa kind of 2002-2003, it lifted the same language. It was like someone copying an exam essay with Blair sitting next to you writing this exam, although kind of go back 20 years, um, and and, and copying it and assume you'd get the same marks, i.e. big election victories. So that's the context. Now, the article begins fine with a familiar attack, nothing working in Britain. That is absolutely the thing that needs to be said again and again, because it echoes with all our experiences, as we've discussed many times here in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. But then we are off with uh, Blair. It's almost lifted from a speech he gave to the party conference. I think it was 2002, 2003 or whatever, um, when he focused on domestic stuff. Obviously, Iraq was whirling around then as well. So over to the article, Keir Starmer. So he's, he's set up how bad everything is and hope for change. And here we go. First paragraph to analyze. But the hope that comes with the promise of a fresh start and a new way of doing things cannot be a code word for recklessness. Well, step back and think, who is arguing for recklessness? There is a debate about how you achieve economic growth and relative stability uh, to bring about that growth, but no one's arguing for recklessness. But he goes on then. Pointing at problems and promising vast sums of money to fix them has too often been the comfort zone of Labour oppositions. Now, this is when my mind started whirling. Comfort zone was one of Tony Blair's favourite words and disingenuous. Um, He used to say, you know, addressing Labour conferences, we can stay in our comfort zone and not pursue reform. But what did he mean by comfort zone? Or reform. Uh, We talk about reform a lot on the podcast. The reform of the NHS has always been on the agenda. There was a huge reform of the NHS before Attlee had left power. They introduced prescription charges, a massive reform. It's nonsense to think reform came up as an idea in about 2002. Um, But the term comfort zone, You see, Tony Blair was absolutely in his comfort zone in berating parts of the Labour Party to the cheers of the Murdoch newspapers. He was in a comfort zone. So what did he mean? But anyway, there it is plucked out again, that term comfort zone from the Blair era. And what a different era, 2002, 2003, a different range of challenges. 
On we go. This is Keir Starmer. If we are to turn things around, then economic stability must come first. That will mean making tough choices and having ironclad fiscal rules. Another of Blair's favorite phrases, he used it a lot in the early phase, actually, when the choices, frankly, with a growing economy were relatively easy. His first party conference speech as prime minister, the theme was tough choices. And here we have it again, along with ironclad fiscal rules, of course, plucked from the Gordon Brown language. But Brown, importantly, had many ideas about social justice as well and how you combine the two. Anyway, so we're, we're now in kind of 97, 98 New Labour era, using exactly the language from that period. The supposed alternative, this is Keir Starmer, huge unfunded spending increases at a time when the Tories have left nothing in the coffers, is a recipe for more of the chaos of recent years and more misery for working people. So here we have an argument which is going to set the course for them copying New Labour in 97 and backing Tory spending plans for the opening period of a Labour government. A precise sort of copy of the language and the argument. But the context now is very different. There is no economic growth. Now, in his interview with Laura Kunzberg on Sunday, he said, we're going to do things through economic growth. But how do you get the economic growth? In some cases, you have to do the things to get the economic growth. So anyway, it doesn't make as much sense now as when it was espoused in the early New Labour era and it's just been lifted, plucked from it, it seems to me, without much thinking. Say, copying Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's essay questions or their answers to essay questions from 1997 to 2003. On we go to Keir Starmer's next point. It's a mistake to believe that being responsible about spending somehow dampens how bold we can be. Bold was one of Tony Blair's favorite words. He used it quite often when he was being weak. At our best when at our boldest, he used to proclaim in relation to Iraq when he weakly sided with President Bush. He was not bold enough to challenge America and President Bush, but in being not bold, he proclaimed it as boldness. And in some of the uh, public service reforms, he was in his comfort zone. He was in alliance with the mighty newspapers who were far more powerful at the time than any dissenting voices in the Labour Party. But anyway, nothing to do with spending the current situation, which incidentally sort of vindicates Osborne and Cameron and their spending plans. It's nothing to do with spending, only to do with unspecified reforms. It kind of gives a, a free pass to this current government. On we go. On the contrary, demonstrating our prudence allows us to be more radical with our plans to transform the country. Here they steal from Gordon Brown's famous and brilliant soundbite, prudence for a purpose. So it's another lift from early new labor. And then he goes on to his five missions, some of which, now the missions are a fresh way of going at things, but they clearly can't just be ends in themselves, they have to be means. And he mentions the uh, five missions. Then he goes on to say, taking seriously the foundations of economic responsibility may not set people's pulses racing, but the new country we can build on top of them 
will do. Now, this is really interesting. New country. Blair's famous speech, uh, we're now in the opposition era of new Labour. A new country, a young Britain, a Britain reborn, lifting again from an early Blair speech from a different era. To stress how weird this is and how unimaginative and weak and in the end dangerous, I think, this would be Tony Blair standing up in 1994, having hired Harold Wilson's key figures like Joe Haynes and Bernard Donoghue, and Tony Blair starting, we are in favor of the white hot heat of the technological revolution. Although, of course, Tony Blair does talk about technology as if this is a new theme, whereas uh, it's a theme that Wilson made his own in the early 60s. So it's a new country. Uh, by taking seriously the foundations of economic responsibility. Well, economic responsibility is uh, no one, again, claims to be economically irresponsible. But in the context of virtually zero or anemic growth in the British economy, what is economic responsibility? How do you get the growth? Go back to the last couple of podcasts, because uh, we in the rock and roll politics have been discussing the how. But anyway, we move on. Keir Starmer then goes on to say this. Take, for example, the changes we will deliver to our planning system. They won't cost a penny, but they will ensure we build hundreds of thousands of more homes and give families their hope, their optimism, and their future back. Fair enough. But let's see um, how this goes and how this kind of centralized ambition, which is a good one, we've got to build more houses. It's been one of the factors in Britain's decline since the 70s. Even in the 70s, that era of economic disarray, uh, hundreds of thousands of affordable houses were built. It stopped post-79 with the sale of the council houses. So it's a good thing, but it contradicts to some extent uh, what was Keir Starr's driving mission at the beginning of the year, which was to let local communities take back control. So who's going to decide whether the houses are built or not, the centre or local communities, and in what form? But anyway, fair enough, he's absolutely right. Although he plans not to spend a penny himself, he's wholly dependent on freeing up the private sector to do it. Let's see. And then he goes on to the other missions to halve violence against women and girls, deliver clean electricity by 2030, instantly uh, ambitious and admirable proposition. Uh, again, the means not wholly clear, but anyway. And secure the highest sustained growth in the G7. Massively ambitious, the means not at all clear. Alongside plans for higher skills, proper industrial strategy, and regional innovation. Um, all of that's good. Then, frankly, the left has to start caring a lot more about growth, about creating wealth, attracting inward investment, and kick-starting a spirit of enterprise. It's the only show in town for those who dream of a brighter future. Um, it, again, it's not entirely clear who he is attacking because um, very few, I know some of you in the rock and roll politics are not 
for green reasons are not bothered about growth, but most people do care about growth and obviously about creating uh, wealth because that provides the money to pay for public services and so on. So it's a kind of, again, a false juxtaposition. It's not as outrageous as Liz Truss's attack on the anti-growth coalition of North London podcasters, but it kind of creates a false debate because most people are in favor of growth. So it's a kind of, yeah, it, it, it doesn't make an argument because you're not arguing against many people. So, but anyway, all that of this imprecision leads to a dramatic opening to the next paragraph. This is the heart of our approach, getting Britain thinking big again. Um, well, so far we've had housing um, as an ambition. And it's a good ambition. And so, some of those other missions, as I say, I think are, are fine, but they need to be developed. Now, this is where my heart sinks, as you will know, as a re if you're regular listeners. To do this requires reform, first and foremost, rather than just more money. Well, again, it's what reform? You know, all right, we've had the planning controls, but what reforms in other areas? And sure, not just more money, but it's quite hard to work out where you're going to get the doctors from, the teachers from, and the other stuff, or indeed invest in Britain's creaking infrastructure by reform alone. And so everyone supports reform. It's a complete myth that people are opposed to reform. The debate is about the nature of the reform just saying it requires reform first and foremost. Wouldn't would, If I was marking this as a GCSE exam with Keir sitting next to Blair and Brown 30 years ago and copying their essays, it wouldn't pass. It's too imprecise. Listen to many of our podcasts on the term reform. Then, People will, of course, wonder what this means for public services, for sure, because it hasn't been explained in the endless proclamations of reform. It's clear they have been left outmoded, outdated, and run down. We must make them modern, innovative, and focus squarely on the people who use them. Again, there is no one in the UK in favour of ancient, non-innovative public services determinedly focused not on the people who use them. Now, that doesn't mean they are as efficient and as streamlined and as accountable as they should be, or as resourced, but apparently it's nothing to do with that. Uh, so the issue is the nature of the reform. And indeed, some of the reforms of the New Labour era and certainly the Cameron era have added to the services being run down and not in the interest of the people who use them. On we go to the concluding sentence of this paragraph. But given the state of the public services, we will not be left with the money to simply service failure. It's reform or bust. Well, what is reform or bust? You know, what reforms for the NHS sinking? Uh, we've heard the use of the private sector to address capacity issues. Okay, that's fine. But that is kind of He's going to go on to this in a minute. This that's a sticking plaster, you know. What what are the problems with the reforms? There have been about twenty five reforms uh, since two thousand and one. 
involving the NHS. Uh, and they are now being countered by this current government, or were, when Jeremy Hunt, as chair of the Health Select Committee, and Matt Hancock, as health secretary, realized the disparate nature of the reforms had made no one in charge, and they were going to sort of bring it all back together. Is that the reform? It's not at all clear. With schools, is the uh, reform addressing some of the fracturing that has arisen from academies, local authority schools, self-governing schools, or do you want more of that? What is the reform? Anyway, on we go to the uh, rest of the article. That is going to mean a serious, possible, thought-through rewiring and a big shift in mindset, away from the sticking plaster politics of recent years and towards a strategic, long-term approach. Not top-down targets that try to bludgeon skilled professionals into inefficient processes, but empowering those on the front line to deliver real improvements. That is a lift from Blair 2001 to 2005, when he was always talking about empowerment of patients, empowerment of parents, and so on. And of course, it's a noble objective. But I remember having a conversation when there were a lot of internal discussions about reform then. It's not as if Keir Starmer's discovered reform, but anyway, I've made that clear, he's copying uh, Blair. But how you empower is really challenging and problematic. It's like the whole notion of choice for patients. I remember Jack Straw, who was one of the cabinet ministers who kind of dared to think, say, the problem is to have real choice in hospitals, say you need a surplus of places or a surplus of GPs to choose a different GP, in which case you would then get complaints that some hospitals are only half full. And so it's really difficult. And if not top-down targets, what is the mechanism? It's not at all clear. Then we come on to an absolute famous lift of Blair's. It will mean moving from a one-size-fits-all approach to bespoke services that work for people seizing on the huge opportunities of technological advance. Now, Blair used to do this all the time. Uh, it's the end of one size fits all to be bespoke services that work for people. The thing is, how, especially if you're not planning to spend much more money, you know, you can get a bespoke service if you can afford to go private. You can phone up and say, you know, I don't know, I want to facelift or I want whatever it is you want, and you can get a bit bespoke service. It's never been a one-size-fits-all in the sense that, you know, if you use the NHS for a heart problem, you will, in, you will get a heart specialist. I mean, I, what does it mean? You know, it is an utterly vague, imprecise juxtaposition. And then we come to technological advance. Now, Obviously, technology and technological advances are fantastic if governments take control of them and use them properly. So he writes, we can understand now someone's health risks by sequencing their DNA. Great. Then he goes on to say, we can create truly personalized care by designing drugs for single patients based on what we know about their genetics. This is all stuff he's got from the Tony Blair Foundation. We will go further, faster, by removing the barriers innovators still face in getting their products to the NHS. Again, something from the Tony Blair Foundation. Fine, but tiny, when there are chronic shortages of staff, of GPs, there's a problem of recruitment and retention uh, that are fundamental. 
And this is kind of very tiny stuff. And again, that's copying New Labour pre-97, where everything was incremental. But the scale of the crisis means the symbolism, the reassuring symbolism of 97, that there were going to be cautious incrementalists coming in, I just think is not quite the same now. Of course, they're 20 points ahead. My God, you know, you, you wonder who the ones still voting Tory are, frankly, given the state of the country. Okay, so we then move on. It will mean moving away from the highly centralized way services are currently delivered. A big Tony Blair theme. He brought in reforms to do it, but apparently, um, unsurprisingly, um, it, it led to more mediating agencies and less empowerment. Back to Keir. Crucially, it must mean creating a prevention-first approach. Yeah, brilliant. And indeed, the smoking ban was a brilliant way of making some people's health better and less reducing the demand on the NHS, and there are many other examples. Access to a trained mental health professional in every school so that our children have the support they need, well, that will have to be paid for. New mentors for young people who are most vulnerable to crime, great. That will have to be resourced. So then he mentions when he was the director of public prosecutions because he saw better outcomes by acting early. Good sentence. He was director of public prosecutions. He ran a big team. He introduced change. That's something he should highlight because it is a reminder that here is a serious, weighty figure. But okay, so that sentence kind of is all right. Then back we go to uh, kind of lifting from a different era. There is no trade-off between reassurance and hope, spending money carefully and bold reform, knowing that we can only build something better if we put down rock-solid foundations. That combination is not just the route to a Labour government, it's the route to real meaningful change for millions across our country. Um, well, yeah, reassurance and hope has been a theme of this podcast in our time, hasn't it? You know, the, the challenge is to combine the two for a Labour opposition. But it all has to be credible. And there has to be at the very least, and this is where artistry comes in, an appearance of absolute clarity and purpose. And copying someone from 20, 30 years ago, however successful at the time, and some of it, by the way, in practical terms, was not a success. So final kind of denouement. The Tories' destruction of the economy and our public services has made the job ahead of us even harder and the recovery more difficult. But it's also made us steelier in our resolve to deliver the brighter future that Britain deserves. Well, that's a fine sentence, but what preceded it does not justify that denouement, I'm afraid. I thought it was really low-level stuff, and I fear it was put together by the people who used to work for Tony Blair, and inevitably, I don't blame them. You see things through the prism of a soaring period in your career. So he's got people like Peter Hyman there, Matthew Doyle, uh, who was uh, worked for Tony Blair at the Blair Institute. Before that, he ran the Liz Kendall leadership campaign, or didn't run it, but helped, was involved with it. And by the way, Peter Hyman's book on his time in number 10 is brilliant and 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 quite revealing in some respects. Um, and 
but they the, the, inevitably. So I assume what happened is thinking their Blair time, one of these people wrote it, it had gone round and tested by focus groups, I don't know. And then he would have cleared it, Keir Starmer. But you've got to be Keir Starmer in 2023, not copy essay answers from Blair and Brown from a different era. Yes, there are lessons about how to win from that period and lasting lessons. But for goodness sake, discover your own language and frame arguments about now in a more compelling, authentic, distinctive, original way. British politics is presidential in culture, and people should be talking about the Keir Starmer era, not, oh my God, here we go, it's the ghost of the Tony Blair era. And by the time some of you hear this, Keir Starmer is appearing at a Blair Institute event where Tony is interviewing Keir and both are speaking. And he's obviously made a decision. Here was a winner. I want total identification with it. But even that, although that I think is a mistake, it would be like, uh, I don't know, uh, Thatcher saying, well, Heath won in 1970. I'll kind of work with him. And or as I said, you know, Blair turning to Wilson, ah, yeah, Harold won four times. I'll go, you know, use his people. So I think it's a mistake anyway. But if you're going to do it, separate yourself, be you in a different and distinctive way. Now, you know, it looks as if he's going to win and that none of this in terms of winning, although I fear it might have, uh, you know, none of this kind of stuff will appeal so overtly to the Red Wall or Scotland, for example where they, you know, the rebel they were wary of Blair, certainly by the end. And, um, well, we know what happened in Scotland in the end, although not under Blair or Brown, in fairness. But anyway, it's just wrong for a political project to copy another. It's lazy, actually, though none of them are lazy. They're all working 18-hour days, or I hope they are. Anyway, enough of it. There is time still to discover a language, a freshness, a sense that this is new and exciting and, of course, reassuring. There has to be the reassurance, but not through that. Anyway, what do you all think? I mean, maybe you think differently, but um, I, I really do think it was one of the weakest articles from a party leader for a long time. And uh, yeah, work needs to be done, but it's in a rosy context of a big poll lead. Much easier, actually to do things when you've got a pole lead because you are stronger and it's not being done in a panic and desperation. That's a reflection from me. And now over to all of you. If you want to join in the conversation, steverick14 at iCloud.com. And if you are joining in the conversation, do let others know about the podcast. If each of you told a friend, do subscribe. We delve deep. We kind of will double the figures and get up that chart. Anyway, thank you very much, those of you who have written today. So I've got lots about labor, some very long and detailed questions. I've read them all. Um, and would normally read some of them out. But uh, because I've focused on Keir and Labour in some detail with that Observer piece, I'm going to um, reflect elsewhere. I've got a great interesting one from Richard Alderson, who says, I like to listen to the podcast Walking the Dog or more recently Running as I train for the Glasgow Half Marathon, where I'm looking to raise funds for the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Oh, well, um, some of these podcasts now, long enough 
to keep you going for the whole uh, marathon. Um, though not this one. Don't worry. Uh, this will keep you going for a 10K in some cases. Anyway, he writes, the UK has huge elements of poverty in many areas with significant inequality. This lends itself to people seeing tax as a burden because we were talking on this podcast for new listeners about this phrase tax burden and how distorting and constraining it is. It, it, it sounds so painful, a tax burden. But he says, as an extra percentage point in tax could be the difference between a hot meal on the table or not, it is difficult to see the big picture and future benefits from tax when people live with those daily concerns. Add to that the constant reporting of a million pounds wasted here, a few million there, and the numbers are so big for the typical person that it's easy to think there's enough money in the system if only it was used well. And he says, as for my background, I'm a civil servant working in the technology side of things and see examples of great waste every day, which is still trivial amounts given the departmental budgets. So Richard, if you work in technology in the civil service, the only way this is ever going to be resolved is a modern way to tax and spend. And you know that public spending round that takes place in government? It's pathetic and outdated and old-fashioned. It needs, I'm sounding like Blair stroke Starmer, reform. Um, but as I say, everyone believes in reform all the time. That's not the issue. And the reform it needs is this. It needs to be made much more accessible. What happens in a public spending round now is it's all done in secret by ministers and the treasury. Um, you get leaks every now and again. And then, as you say, Richard, huge sums are announced, uh, which are incomprehensible. And you're right. Probably people think much more is wasted than it's, although there is terrible waste. And that's something uh, Labour government should sort out. And here's how they can do it. Every penny needs to be made more accessible and accountable. I think it would be quite good to have just transparent discussions with ministers during the public spending round, with the Treasury saying, look, we, they're putting in this, this is our issue, but uh, and, and voters getting more engaged. And then when these huge sums are announced, they really need to be broken down. I would almost send every voter an accessible email with what their tax is being spent on. It, there just needs to be more of a connection made. But you're absolutely right, you know, and, and of course, taxes shouldn't go up for those really suffering at the moment, as many are. Um, if they are to go up, it clearly needs to be targeted. It shouldn't be seen as a burden or a punishment. I totally disapprove of the term wealth tax because it sounds like an attack for being wealthy and that tax is always a punishment. Um, but you target it and then explain how every penny is being spent. I'm a big fan of earmarked taxes. So Richard, uh, uh, it kind of doesn't wholly answer what you regard as an almost impossible challenge. And it is, of course, why you know I, I totally understand Labour caution on, on the issue. The moment you mention any tax rise, once it's been put through the sun and the mail, every person with low earnings who are terrified about the cost of living will think they're going to be taxed by a Labour government. It's a problem. Um, but I think if arguments are framed accessibly, it is one that you can get round and making connections. It's going to be one of the themes of this podcast, making connections. Anyway, thank you, Richard. Um, 
Yeah. John from Aberdeen's got in. I don't know how he's got in because it's about Labour. And he says he's withholding his name because I don't want to be purged from the Labour Party. But of many, many, many points he's making, he thinks that Kistammer embracing this kind of wing could be uh, sowing the seeds of his fall when people turn uh, the newly empowered kind of right of Labour uh, when uh, Keir gets into difficulty will go for Wes uh, Streeting as the answer to the problems. Uh, John makes many other points. John, I, I don't know how you got in this list. I thought I'd banned all Labour emails, but anyway, you got in. Um, Fraser Odes, and now we're going internationally, in Spain, uh, he says, it looks like that the PP will win, but will need, and this is the kind of right-wing party that's getting a lot of attention, the support of Vox to get an, a majority to govern. Although Vox will gain power, they won't have gained many votes. Despite this fact, the result will be interpreted as another victory for populism, when the only party who will probably make significant gains is PP, a soft-right party. Um, they, they mentioned some vague other podcasts. Even the rest is politics said it's not impossible to imagine Vox being the main party. Fraser says, what rot? Well, Fraser, what do you expect from that? Uh, little-known podcast. Anyway, Fraser says, PP are compared to the UK Tory party, but are more like the old Tory party of John Major. I mentioned the One Nationism of Macmillan earlier. Um, the current UK government, uh, with its net zero scrutiny group and un unwelcoming attitude to child immigrants, is closer to Vox, this right-wing party, than PP. Uh, well, thank you for providing context, Fraser, for the election in Spain. It's getting a lot of attention. You're right, it is being portrayed in terms of uh, a rise of right-wing populism, and that's a very interesting counter. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Yvonne Hewitt asks very nicely, uh, she's very nice about the podcast, thank you, Yvonne. Uh, I need all the praise I can get frankly. Um, Yvonne, also, uh, while you're in Edinburgh, is there any way your non-peripatetic listeners can hear recordings of these sessions? Well, thank you for asking. I'm afraid there isn't. Even the non-peripatetic listeners will have to make the journey, Yvonne. They won't be uh, recorded for various reasons, which I won't bore anyone with. But thank you so much for asking. I, I appreciate it. And if you could become non-peripatetic, it'd be great to see many of you there. Um, Helen Gordon says, uh, yeah, the Hugh Edwards issue. I'm going to got a lot of emails on that. I noticed uh, the legendary Venetian Kay wrote about and others, but I, I think it's kind of been done to death for the time being. But I will read Helen's just for now because she mentions George Osborne's wedding as well. So anyway, she says, um, yeah, the sun has a lot to answer for in this saga, but journalists should understand that what may be endlessly fascinating to them means nothing to most people outside the media. Yeah, I know. I, well, I mentioned that in the podcast. Um, that it was most fascinating to journalists, some of whom know Hugh Edwards personally. They were the most fascinated and assumed their fascination spread across the country. And then she says, while I'm on my soapbox, I'd like to commend you for not having joined the media politico event of the year, George Osborne's wedding. Thank you for praising me for that. Um, I wasn't invited, actually, Helen. It took no restraint. If I had been invited, you know, Helen, you'd be really furious with me. I think I'd have gone. I know people who went and loved it. Anyway, 
While I understand that people make friends through mutual work, it seems odd to me that so many journalists were there, including some rival podcasters. Yeah, well, Helen, I wouldn't bother with that podcast either. And a Today presenter and a former BBC political editor. How is it possible to scrutinise someone objectively in the course of your work if you're that close to them socially? Yeah, that's why I read yours out, Helen, because that is an interesting question. Can journalists be close friends to politicians? Like Danny Finkelstein, the Times columnist, is very close to George Osborne and quite close to David Cameron. He always was quite open about it, but it did mean that during that era, uh, he never criticised them and was, um, I think he's sincere. I interviewed him for this podcast. You can listen to it. He believes that their uh, real-term spending cuts, you know, more Thatcherite than Thatcherism, was the centrist option at the time. I assume he's sincere in it, but it might be influenced by the fact that he is close friends with these people. And the others who went, yeah, they are friends with them, and it will uh, they might have been friends in some cases with uh, uh, George Osborne's wife, Thea Rogers, who used to work at the BBC. And I, I knew her. If I'm, I'm amazed I didn't get a wedding invitation. Um, but um, you raise a complex question about relationships between journalists and politicians. Um, and it's one, to be honest, I'm still wrestling with in some respects and uh, really wrestled with in the new Labour era because I did regard some as friends, I think, um, and socialised with some of them. Um, and then can you be as critical as you should be sometimes in those circumstances? It's, it's, it's problematic. Anthony Wilson, he too writes about Labour. I'm not going to read your email out, Anthony, because enough Labour this week. But his thesis is that the Roy Jenkins observation of Tony Blair, uh, that he was carrying a Ming vase across a clouded, crowded floor and could smash it at any moment, he thinks it's now being overplayed uh, and induces an almost paralyzing caution. So if you don't move, the vase can't smash. So you kind of echo what I've been saying, Anthony. But he also says, I'm reading from my new book of poems in, in London at the Betsy Trotwood Bar on July the 27th. And everyone in the cooperative is welcome. Nice bar, that one, Anthony. I'm sure your poems are great. So there we are. I've mentioned it uh, live on the podcast. And finally, Charlotte Aldred raises a really interesting theme. Um, I've been wanting to ask you for a while your favourite example of British political history revisionism. Policies inevitably prove more or less effective with hindsight. But are there periods we look back on with a very different perspective, such that there might even be a fair degree of consensus with the new view, the hindsight view? I'm prompted by a creeping sense of revisionism, re-COVID lockdowns. Yeah, well, I'm worried about that revisionism, this revisionism that the lockdowns weren't necessary, if that's what you mean. Um, and, and, you know, the whole theme of whether Britain should have locked down earlier, of course it should have done. But it's been questioned ferociously by The Telegraph and others. But I don't think yet there is a full revisionism in place on that one. Uh, Re-entry into the single market might need something approaching a deeper revisionist movement amongst Leave voters to legitimise the change in policy. Yeah, I agree, Charlotte. It will come, uh, but it's not there yet. Those of us who know it was a disaster 
on the whole voted Remain. Some Brexiteers, I don't think they think they were wrong to vote Brexit, but they think they've been betrayed. Um, but the revisionism, well, actually, in a way, it's not revisionism, because from the word go, it was pretty clear that the Brexit deal, as negotiated by Johnson and Frost, was going to be catastrophic. But it's more about when a consensus emerges to that effect, and when the political space opens up to make more of that consensus. Uh, yeah, Charlotte says, when I worked in the cabinet office during the coalition period, the question was sometimes posed as to how the Lib Dems would be perceived in the future. Would history judge them more kindly than their party members and supporters were at the time, thanks to tuition fees, austerity, etc.? They certainly hope so. Um, well, I don't know about that one. I think um, uh, they obviously got punished immediately and are now recovering uh, electorally. I think they'll do okay in the election, the Liberal Democrats. But whether there will be a revisionism which leads people to broadly accept that uh, Clegg and Danny Alexander were wise not so much to go into the coalition, but to give Cameron and Osborne such space and Oliver Letwin to pursue their manifesto of the radical right. Um, I, I can't see that revisionism being quite so generous, but it really is interesting that while, when time passes and you look back at events, you see them in a new light. Um, I think there is some revisionism now around Harold Wilson, for example, uh, who was airbrushed out of history. Um, but um, I think he is being seen in a more positive light. I just pick it up. But uh, maybe I'm wrong about it. I mean, it's, it's, but it's a fascinating theme when time changes the way you see the past. There is a constant dialogue between the present and the past in history. And it is one of the most interesting. So sometimes you read works of history written in the 1930s, say, about an earlier period. And what you're reading is something that tells you as much about the 1930s as that period in history. I mean, it's fascinating. Anyway, look, God, I've been going on for long enough. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Um, if you could leave a review, only if you like it. And, and Keir, please leave a review as well, because I know you'll like it because it's well intended. Um, but the rest of you could definitely leave a review. That would be hugely appreciated if you like it. That means five stars, by the way, just to be absolutely clear. It makes a difference. And yeah, uh, do pass on the word, subscribe and join our community where we get together and make sense of it all. And don't forget, say, uh, live Patreon uh, next Monday, post the by-elections and Edinburgh looming from August the 13th. Anyway, look, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great time. See you soon. Bye.